we've turned up the volume of support by providing them the knowledge, the, the, the platform to express vulnerability, the knowledge to deal with anxieties and worries and doubts and inhibitions and negative emotions, etc. Then we can turn up the volume of stretch and have them at balance, have them at balance. The more support work we do. You're about to listen to an interview for EWS. Intending to provide educational information from various domains in psychology, physical exercise or motor learning, an experienced professional joins in a conversation with our founder, assisting EWS mission of building a mindset and methodology that can optimize both sport performance and mental health. Hope you enjoy and for that I leave you with your host Gonzalo Marques. Hi, dear listener. Today's interview was one that I was thrilled to bring here to EWS. You will listen to one of the most sicked guests so far, a person and colleague, psychologist from the UK, a renowned sport and performance one, and I will tell you more about him in a second. But first, I will say that this was conducted by me on a different style than usual. If you're not familiar with these interviews for EWS with experts, Usually, I prepare some questions around a big theme or a bunch of topics and keep it on a semi-structured, conversation-like style along the way, being more followed by the guest than guiding him or her on strict questions, the ones prepared. And for this one, it was hard for me to select specific topics to dive in, since this man is so much credited and has so much experience and has covered such a wide scope of themes on his appearances, I decided to pick some LinkedIn posts I had saved from him and unravel some more conversation around those from there that could be of interest and assistant for athletes and coaches listening. I remind you that we provide a link at the end of this episode description with his profile and more directing for information and references we make throughout the episode. Plus, I remind you of the following. Wait, just a useful reminder. We know you're investing precious time here. So you can also efficiently work your listening experience by checking the timestamps at the end of this episode show notes. You can click over them to jump directly to the pieces that you find most interesting to your needs and wishes. As for my wish, your review and subscription to EWS Podcast. By doing so, we will be able to offer the listeners more quality content regularly to improve the mental game in sports and work. Until you decide on that, keep enjoying so, this. So, a bit of a background on him. First, personally, for me, He is one of the main references on this area of sports psychology. I am a fan of his own podcast, The Sports Psych Show, where he brings performers, scientists, coaches and psychologists to talk about what matters and what can assist athletes, coaches and parents in the sports world and on the inner world of each of these characters. As you might notice, this was an inspiration for me to start EWS, We want also to assist athletes, coaches and parents. And so it was critical and continues to be to catch upon several ideas, topics and personalities there. And from here, maintain myself actualized. As I made reference, 
He produces amazing condensed posts on LinkedIn and Twitter, also on Instagram, but different style there and not so juicy in my opinion, especially if you're a person interested in develop your knowledge and critically think deeper on approaches taken in sports and on your own processes. And beyond this, he is the author of four books, Soccer Tough and Soccer Tough 2, Simple and Advanced Psychology Techniques to Improve Footballers' Game, Soccer Brain, and Golf Tough, Practice, Prepare, Perform, and Progress. This man has a past as a professional golf player, I should mention. You will hear a bit more of his path from himself in a bit and how it connects to his actual work and interests. And nowadays he works alongside individuals, teams, coaches and organizations globally. He is known for his passion to demystify sports psychology and for creating simple to use performance techniques. He has a first class honors degree in psychology and a master's degree in sports psychology and he's registered with the Health and Care Professions Council, meaning he is an accredited psychologist and bound by a code of conduct which emphasizes confidentiality, evidence on professional development, safe practice and standards of proficiency. To know more about him and his soccer academy, yes, he has one more directed to the psychology again, and which is designed to athletes and teams to develop mental skills. There you go, with over than a hundred videos there. I will leave again the link on the description for you. And for the next hour, you can expect an exchange of ideas on the themes of identity, like broader views and the importance of taking in consideration other roles in life, as an athlete especially, discovery learning, more specifically on implicit and explicit ways of guiding one's learning processes. We touch on a big principle that the psychologist stresses often, which is on having a flexible stretch support balance, and more things like unpacking elements within the concept of self-efficacy, mental toughness, and achievement goal theory. And beyond these specializations in soccer and golf, this man is very versatile, as you can see for yourself on what he brings to the table on his social media and the podcast, again, the Sports Psych Show. And he also worked and helps people in areas as diverse as business, the performing arts and the military. He does this by breaking down the complex theories on, of sports and performance psychology and helping his clients to easily implement them into their everyday lives. And it's from this wide scope of expertise that I'm honored to have this man join EWS. So without further ado, let's efficiently work sports, athletes and coaches and receive this big reference to me, Dan Abrams. Welcome. Thanks. Gonzalo, great to be on. Thank you so much for the invite. Really looking forward to speaking with you, mate. Good. Yeah. And and before we we start, I want to I will not ask you for a an intro. 
I guess few people uh, would not know you, but I would like to ask you something in the lines of uh, what prompted you to sports psychology, your passion, and uh, yeah, what do you highlight more there? Yeah, so um, I became a, a, I became passionate about sports psychology. Um, I suppose it grew over time. Um, I was actually, when I was a teenager and I was playing and practicing golf and trying to get better at golf because I had an ambition to have a career in golf, as a professional, um, I my my mother bought me um, a sports psychology book, so I read that, and I, I read a couple. It sort of led me to read a couple more. So I was quite early, uh, quite young, in starting uh, my interest in sports psychology, um, and really it grew as I as I competed as a professional golfer. I read. Uh, more and I saw a couple of sports psychologists um, with mixed um, success and then um, when I started coaching golf I again when you're a coach uh, as you'd appreciate um, you know so much of coaching is psychosocial the psychological mm -hmm. and social side the biological side the environment the culture um, and so on and so forth and so um, I I became even more passionate, even more interested, and that's when I decided to go to university and do my qualifications, uh, and then I became a registered sports psychologist. So, you know, it, it's kind of my my passion and interest in sports psychology built over over some time, um, and then I became a fully qualified sports psychologist uh, just over 15 years ago now. So it's been some time and and some great experiences. Yeah. And uh, I guess many people appreciate that, thankfully. Um, and speaking about that, uh, before I've said it already in the intro, we will go for a different format here, going along uh, several posts you have on LinkedIn, because you're very active there. And I must say, I appreciate your care, your love, your passion that for me, pretty much is represented there. Uh, you have a regular activity, uh, you, you, you position yourself to serve uh, both coaches, athletes and parents uh, as much as EWS likes to do. And uh, yeah, more than appreciate that, as I've said, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And uh, I'm preparing an episode this week in gratitude. And the, I guess it was Carl Jung that said that a teacher or a coach um, could have his job very much appreciated if it helped athletes, let's say, to improve their performance. But few people would be truly uh, profoundly grateful uh, because they touched their heart. This was Carl Jung saying, but uh, it's my words for you too. You are a big reference for me. And so it made me much more sense to go for these posts and we will be commenting on that uh, because I, I see them almost every day and for me I would be doing uh, posts of the week it's a series of hours on on these posts so without further ado let's go for this you are seeing those uh, yep so the first one first of eight nine or ten depending on the time we have uh, it's on identity this is a a big topic for you, for me, for many of our colleagues in sports psychology, we must, uh, we should uh, have this in mind. So you have here, um, I, I will quote just a bit and then you you will be prompted to, to talk about this. You said there, um, 
you've talked about the movie and then you warn to this thing around identity. Your whole identity becomes enveloped in this one single urge. It becomes who you are. Uh, we can talk about this regarding athletes. Uh, wh why did you did you come up with this? Yeah, talk me about your importance in this. Well, as you've mentioned, I, I try to uh, do a post every day on, on LinkedIn um, about various topics. Um, I can dot all over the place, so there's no sort of set uh, menu, if you like, of what I'll write about. Um, um, I... Um, One of my my favorite films is uh, an English film called Chariots of Fire, uh, which was about uh, the 1924 Olympic Games and a uh, a couple of uh, an English runner and a Scottish runner, um, and and it just it has various themes. Um, and the the hundred meter runner, um, th there's a real religious uh, theme that underpins the film, and the Scottish runner is a devout Christian. And the 100 meter runner, so that the the, the the Scottish runner is a runner called Eric Little, um, and the uh, 100 meter runner, the sprinter, is called Harold Abrahams. Funnily enough, no relation, um, and um, he is of uh, a Jewish heritage, and um, and at that time, I think there were quite a few um, racial. Uh, undertones or overtones even uh, in English society um, and so I think he felt very very um, um, what how, how would one describe it um, a little bit of a social outcast because of his his religion and a big part of his motivation came from that or at least that's what the film portrayed um, and he became very very um, he was Harold Abraham's the runner, the sprinter. That's what I do. That's who I am. That's how I go about my everyday life. Now, to be an Olympian, there's got to be a certain degree of that. Of course, there has to be. Of course, your identity is going to be wrapped up in your sport um, because you're going to be doing it a lot. You're going to be sacrificing things. You're going to be running or jumping or whatever it's sport it is that you do to the to uh, more so than you do anything else. Absolutely. But what we pretty much know now in psychology, from a, a well-being and welfare standpoint, and for from a performance standpoint as well, but from a well-being and welfare standpoint, is that it's useful to have to enjoy multiple identities to enjoy multiple identities um, it's healthier and safer a safer for us as human beings um, it enables us to have things to focus on away from our sport um, that helps us uh, re recuperate uh, rejuvenate rest um, it Uh, it, it's um, it helps us to uh, retain a, a sense of a sense of purpose every day. Um, it, it and from a performance standpoint, um, it's also useful because when everything uh, in our life is about our sport, is about um, us as an athlete or me as a footballer, then. Um, if my identity is wrapped up 
in that, then it becomes quite emotion inducing. Um, it's easy for me to um, catastrophize and think in all or nothing terms around my sports when all I've got is my sport, when my sole identity is I'm Dan the footballer, I'm Dan the athlete. Um, so actually that can be to the detriment of my performance. And yeah, so... Yeah, I, sorry, that's the same to saying that uh, by being so attached, us as a person, as an athlete, uh, to, to that sole identity, it's like... Our, we are more fragile, like because of if the results don't appear, maybe we get more down. Uh, yep, yep, yeah. yep. Absolutely, we can. We absolutely can do. We can be, we can be more anxious going into a, a performance situation. Um, we can be more despondent and down after that performance is uh, after that performance is executed, especially if we've uh, performed poorly. Um, if we if we don't have anything in our life away from our sport, we don't give ourselves an opportunity to get away from our sport. If we don't have anything in our life away from our sport, then the we turn up the volume of importance of our of our sport to the point where it can become claustrophobic. Um, so uh, to have something else is to give us a better opportunity to high perform in our sport. Wait, excuse me, before you continue on for the episode, I will just ask you for a review. This is a common request, I know, and I imagine it can be tedious to do so, to divert now, and I am aware you as a listener just want to grow through. However, if you do so on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, it makes an important contribution for EWS growth and for us to keep providing relevant contents for you to actualize your sports practice and mental game. And also for me to be able to continue to bring in great guests. Moreover, each month we randomly select their two winners to receive exclusive material that will assist them reaching their full sporting potential. Also, it is important for me to hear your feedback. So head over there, please. The links are in the description, as always, alongside with the timestamps. See ya. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because it's counterintuitive. The more one thinks one is involved and super wrapped in our sport, in our training, the better one will be. But yeah, I chose this topic as the number one because it's really fundamental, I guess, uh, many many other guests i had on ews point to this importance of uh, taking care of our life as a whole uh, taking care of other areas of life so this is curious because many times when we see our lives more broadly and take care of those uh, uh, taking care of our role as a sister or as a friend or as a dad as a student as you point there in the in the post also maybe our performance levels will get better because we don't have we don't depend so much on that we don't have that much to lose maybe we are clearer in our mind i don't know there's many factors here yeah yeah i think the final thing to say on this for me is is to emphasize that it can be extraordinarily challenging for anybody who's passionate about their profession um to enjoy multiple identities 
um, it's something that I find difficult. Um, I think that it's also, as you've alluded to, as you've mentioned, it can be challenging for a sports competitor to appreciate the value and the usefulness of having multiple identities um, because we're so socialized in sport into work ethic, all or nothing thinking, uh, a constant focus on the end goal, a constant focus on the process, a constant focus on our performance, um, that it becomes almost taboo to suggest that we can give ourselves, afford ourselves the opportunity to have other things. It feels taboo, it feels wrong, it feels like it's going to be to the detriment of your performance. It's enormously challenging to understand, you know, even the basics of how the brain is designed and that if we're constantly thinking about our sport, if we're constantly immersed in our sporting world, that we're, for instance, eating away at the sugars and the glucose in our brain and so de-energizing ourselves, you know, one could easily hypothesize that if we're constantly thinking about our sport, we're releasing adrenaline in our, um, uh, you know, from our nervous system. And so subsequently we're depleting our stores. And this is where, you know, players have said to me, Dan, it's really strange. Come mm-hmm. three o'clock kickoff on Saturday. I don't feel energized. I feel tired. And often those players, when you actually quiz them about what they've been doing, what they've been thinking about, they've been thinking about the game all morning. They've been thinking about the game all Friday, all Thursday. They haven't given themselves an opportunity to get away from their sports. But it's it's difficult. It's challenging. And so helping, mm-hmm. last thing to say here, because I know you want to move on, uh, helping players have other things to think about other interests other activities is a useful thing that i find that i engage in with with players all right all right yeah and just to close this off uh, not only in psychological factors as as we you pointed you pointed also to physiological ones and it's like one can get extenuating it's on on a high stress uh, um, mood when uh, when sometimes it's not uh, appropriate it's not facilitating performance because one cannot get that much uh, focused or creative uh, yeah big topic but let's move on <laughs> the second one it's from a post you you did uh, two days ago i guess uh, on discovery learning and this touches a lot on a thing that i'm interested um and it's I, I, I discovered this just on the movement culture. I don't know if you're familiar with that. There are some YouTube channels, some podcasts uh, promoting the the uh, people to to move and discover their bodies and to adapt to environments uh, to get more in touch with their bodies. And um, you point here to. Uh, um, a duality but you don't uh, want to see it as a duality uh, I, I guess uh, it's explicit and implicit guidance uh, and uh, you have a post there to La Masia a Barcelona Football Club Associated uh, saying uh, and yes you you are an advocate I guess to this uh, 
implicit learning on pointing the tasks uh, to the players and let them discover and learn from there more so than the explicit guidance and feedback. Uh, what do you want to say? Yeah, just uh, highlight what you you see mm. this important here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm as I'm as I'm speaking, I'm actually going to bring up my phone because I think there's you know a couple of interesting things said from this. I mean, the first thing, look, a first first couple of things to say is Lamazia is Lamazia, right? They've produced some of the best footballers uh, of all time, so there's no uh, criticism of of them. And 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 I think that all of this stuff is you know these are really important conversations to have, you know. And I think sometimes these conversations can get not you know whether they get heated or you know these are really important conversations for us all to have and there's not necessarily any right or wrong I've always said that I think the only thing that is wrong in coaching is bullying um, is unethical behavior and anything ending with ism so racism and sexism and, and elitism and things like that that's that's the only thing that's wrong in coaching the rest is you know we need to have robust debate about the best way to help young and older players um, become you know the best that they can be or engage you know participate and hopefully participate for a lifetime in sport um, to progress so to learn and to grow and to perform and to perform uh, and 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 so I want to say that I also want to say that you know the the piece that I uh, mentioned in the tweet comes from a brilliant book by uh, uh, Tim Wigmore and uh, Mark Williams and Mark Williams is one of the leading if not the leading expert on motor development he's a Welsh person at the University of Utah um, and I thoroughly recommend his work. And funnily enough, I've got him coming back on my podcast, the Sports Site Show, on on Friday to to talk through a book. So so that that that's that's important to say. Um, I I what I want to say as well is that so if I was to go back, I think the best way for me to answer this question is actually through the prism of golf, because um, you know I spent thousands of hours coaching golf, so that's where my main expertise would be from a coaching perspective. Although I have spent you know thousands of hours by the side of a, a Premier League and Championship football uh, training pitch, so I do know a bit about that and other sports. You know, the first question I would be asking uh, a beginner, if you came to me, Gonzalo, and you'd never played golf before, um, the first thing I'd say to you is, show me what a golf swing looks like. Show me what a golf swing looks like. So I'm not, a, I'm not uh, instructing you explicitly straight away. I'm not telling you to swing back in a certain way and through in a certain way. Okay, I'm actually engaging you, first of all, in a form of social learning. I know you would have watched some form of, of golf in your lifetime. So I, I would want to see um, you to be able to apply what you've seen before. Let's have a look. Let's see what you've got. Okay, you've seen a golf swing. So show me. Now you're either going to show me an action that looks good, aesthetically pleasing or not, or, or effective or not. And we'd, 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 I'd get you to do that without a golf ball. And then I might, what I might do then is prompt a cue, but an external cue. And that external cue would be, we'd probably be standing on a mat or the, or the grass. And I'd say, I want you to show me what a golf swing looks like. Keep doing that for me. Now I want you to clip the mat with the club. Or I want you to clip the grass. So just gently clip the grass or gently clip, clip the mat. 
and so I'm giving you an external cue and that's that that's an explicit instruction but it's an external instruction rather than an internal instruction um, so I'd get you to do that and then I might might as 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 you're doing that I would probably then put a ball in the way and I would say do exactly the same for me the ball will just get in the way okay but I want you to keep showing me what a golf swing looks like and I just want you to clip the mat the ball will just get in the way and then I'll get you to do that and we're not going to worry about where the ball, golf ball goes and then I'll start asking you about where you're what you're experiencing what you're experiencing you know what you're focusing on and what you're experiencing so again I'd be probing there with a, a divergent question uh, as in a question that I don't know what the answer is only you can tell me what that answer is uh, and then I might throw in another little cue depending on what I see or I might get you to explore something internal or external the point I'm trying to make here is in many respects we're in discovery learning I'm doing I might do some explicit instruction based on an external cue and get you to uh, experiment around how you best do that or I might get I might suddenly have something that's a bit I might notice something in your swing like you might have a real long overswing and I think no you know what my my knowledge of the game I know that you need to swing a lot shorter and I want to build up your efficacy here because you're hitting a lot of inconsistent strikes well, what you just heard was something probably easy to understand. But to assimilate this or put it into practice is a harder task for sure. At EWS we aim to translate the theory and mental principles into practice the best way possible. But it all comes down to you. Take a moment to really reflect. Is this good for me? What can I do today to implement it? Again, the keyword, practice. How can you translate this into practice? Practice it and go ahead. Keep enjoying the process of efficiently working sports. Okay, so rather than getting you to explore this too, too much, I really want to give you a guided instruction now. I really want to give you an explicit instruction. So I'll get you to swing back much shorter. I might use an analogy around a hammer or something like that. But the point is, is we need to be very careful about saying we must coach in this way or we must coach in that way. You know, there's, um, I, I think what we, for me, in my opinion, Gonzalo, it's just a very big subject here and very difficult to condense in five minutes, but Let's be clear that what, what perhaps we do know is that we have to adhere to a cognitive architecture and that cognitive architecture tends to revolve around um, working memory and long-term memory. Our working memory store is between four and seven chunks. So we need to make sure our, our, our instruction is simple, is simple um, and we want things to go into our long-term memory. That's how I, I would work. We want to repeat so that it goes into our long-term memory. Um, and, and, and so we don't want a game that is going to fill up our working memory so much that we're not learning at all. So that's where we need to be very careful with games-based, uh, learning, games-based teaching. Um, and, 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 and so I just think coach behavior, uh, needs to align with that cognitive architecture and, but. 
but that's not to suggest that we can't involve players in, in, in guided instruction. I think great coaches are coaches of people. Great coaches are coaches who use a range of instructional forms. Uh, great coaches coach explicitly and implicitly. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd, I'd say to yeah. that. Yeah. And trying to pick on all the things you, you've said there, uh, I think in the end you just uh, try to use the best of the two worlds and be responsive with each each way of going uh, about it. Because I was thinking also on that last part that you said of not putting uh, a player from golf or any other sport on a on a very complex task, right? Because then you it would be too much for him and uh, regarding that memory part is also very important to go like in a step-by-step approach and uh, uh, adding to that those explicit uh, instructions to be helpful for him or her and uh, yeah just uh, being able to know what part uh, implicit or explicit on how combinate the two i guess yeah it's the best way to go to be responsive um yeah i think i think it's it's i think responsive is a good word i i I think that as a coach we talk about you know we talk about coaches guiding attention but coaches have to pay attention they have to pay attention to who's in front of them that's what makes coaching so challenging is individual differences, whether that's individual differences of cognition, individual differences of personality. Um, and that's why I'm a, pragma- I'm a pragmatist, basically, to sum it up, which is we have to do what we have to do in a lesson or a session or an activity and then go back and apply it to the theory. I don't think we should necessarily step into the session and say, this is the theory I'm going to be using here. Um, I think that we need to, and in my golf example, I haven't said, I'm going to use constraints. I'm going to explicitly instruct. I'm going to do it this way. I've said, I've got a whole table of tools. What tool is going to help me here with this player right now, given who they are, given their capacity? If it's a beginner, I know that I probably don't want to go beyond those three things of show me what a golf swing looks like, clip the mat, and then if I feel right, we're going to shorten the swing slightly. Yeah, There's three things. At the time. That, that's enough. You know, that's going to fill up our working memory. So, so, and obviously, if you're coaching a team sport, that becomes very, very challenging. I understand that. And there has to be some compromise, of course. Um, but I think that to I think to simply say we must at this academy coach in an implicit style. Okay, fine, you can do that. But I I understand that. But I would never. We might turn up the volume of implicit co- uh, learning, but I would question the notion of completely turning down the volume of impli- mm-hmm. explicit instruction. And those two can go hand in hand. So sure, it's, a, sure. it's an interesting landscape, Gonzalo. Yeah, and I hope you resolved this. Uh little polemic that uh, went on uh, two days ago but yeah I, I think it's perfect and you mentioned the thing that I was forgetting on the the level of capacity of the team or the player at hand because uh, maybe with a more advanced one 
we can turn up the volume of uh, indirect learning and uh, going for the constraint-led approach. You you talked also about constraints and this is the way. I, I had a, an episode a week, weeks ago on that. Um, and yes, it's going uh, about uh, complexifying, putting some obstacles on the tasks to make them Uh, to stimulate them and uh, go on uh, some creative problem solving and that's good also but, but mm -hmm. yeah and 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 briefly the, the the challenging landscape right now is if we're going to start using terms like constraints led approach cla mm -hmm. the theor theory underpinning cla is ecological dynamics now we don't constrain in ecological dynamics in the same way that we create put conditions for a change of cognitive architecture right so in cla we're constraining to help players um attune to the information in their environment and then they um self-organize based on that information in the environment okay that is different to putting conditions in an activity when you're approaching it from a cognitive perspective because the cognitive perspective isn't about attuning to your environment um, to self-organize from a cognitive perspective you want players to create mental representations of their environment and this is where there's a great deal of confusion right now you know with various people talking about cla 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 but, but cla is underpinned by a whole different theory of brain functioning which is related to ecological dynamics versus information processing so it's a very confused field right now and this is this is where people are some coach educators are very frustrated mm. because there's a lot of people who are misunderstanding the literature and misunderstanding the reasons around constraints versus conditions for example anyway i don't want to take us down a yeah. rabbit hole but it's a <laughs> it it's, would be, it's we see. And, and i don't think it needs to be you know resolved i don't know if if, if it's the right word gonzalo i, I don't mm -hmm. mind let's have debates let's mm -hmm. let's mm -hmm. it's all important it's all important yeah. isn't it it would uh, be a topic for a whole other episode but let's go let's keep yeah. one let's go to the fourth slide on stretch support and okay. I, i think this can be related with this conversation we were having and it's a big topic you continuously go for in your interviews on the sports psych show um you have a stretch dial you have a support dial in many circumstances we can go more for one more for other uh, both of those um Yeah, how do you want to introduce this topic first? Well, I I, I just think you know, look, I, I'm not I'm not a football coach, but um, let let's give an example. When I was working at a Premier League club a few years ago, and I had the opportunity to stand by the side of the pitch and observe, and some of the coaches were interested in my feedback. Um, I. Uh, I'll give you an example. They used to do a keep ball um, whereby, like a 6v2, um, if keep ball is the right word, I'm not too sure, box drill basically, two players in the middle, six on the outside. It was It's kind of like a rondo, but it was done more in, in a box area rather than a circle. Uh, again, my naivety around uh, football, uh, somebody might say, well, that's a rondo, Dan. I, I, I don't know. But basically two players in the it. middle. 
Yeah. Yeah. Trying to trying to trying to intercept, but the the players around this box edge. And and what I noticed, and again, I take this from cognitive psychology, from cognitive science, is that as um, as this was happening, they did something like three reps of two minutes. Uh, with about 30 seconds gaps in between the reps, something like that. And what you'd notice is that the players around the outside in the first rep, they were okay at doing it, um, and they got better towards the end of the two minutes. And then in the next rep, they started better, and they got even better. Uh, and then in the third rep, they did it really, really well. And what's happening there is they're get, getting better at their performance, but they're not necessarily learning. They're getting better at their performance, but they're not necessarily learning. Why do I say that? Because they're starting to identify the little clues and cues as to how their teammates are shaping up, how they're passing the ball. You know, they're getting they're getting comfortable with that and familiar with that particular activity, right? And 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 so they're just performing better. But we don't necessarily want that because that's not football right because the landscape changes all the time so what's happening there is something called the fluency effect as we're seeing information more and more we become familiar with that information and so our performance gets better and so i talked to them about this idea of well, we need to stretch your players you know what we need to do as an idea is instead of doing two minute reps why don't you do a minute take players away and do another activity and bring them back and swap them around so that they're in a different location. Um, to introduce novelty, to introduce randomness. Introduce novelty, yeah. Essentially to get rid to, to be able to tone down the fluency effect. That's an example, probably an elaborate example, but that's an example of turning up the volume of stretch. You know, and that's a Premier League club with very, very good coaches, but they weren't they they were uh, engaging players in a manner that wasn't stretching them enough in my opinion um so that's an example of stretch um, and yeah, uh, sorry just to interrupt you there uh, this goes also hand in hand with the uh, many coaches and players are getting this sense of practicing more in a game like uh, scenario uh, preparing uh, with more precision to those uh, random events that may happen. Uh, Kobe Bryant was a really big adept of this, and uh, but this also enters a uh, maybe a controversy because on one hand we have uh, coaches that want to practice and rep, uh, do the repetition, repetition, repetition to make the moves more automatically. And on the other hand, we have this uh, introducing of randomness and uh, uh, do more free open scenarios right uh, but maybe this also uh, has to be two things that can be applied and we have to be responsive what what do you think i think that during a training session from a cognitive perspective we need simple tasks and we need tougher tasks we need to um we need to introduce desirable difficulties. So that would be the work of Robert Bjork. And this is what cognitive psychology tells us, is that when we actually introduce desirable difficulties, such as variability and randomness and interleaving and spacing, um, we have a greater chance to um, learn what we're trying to learn, to improve, to grow, to develop. And so... If I was to hone in on your point about 
um, repetition, repetition, repetition is important. There's no question about that. But it's uh, there's two things to say. It's what players are doing as they're repeating. You know, are you helping them engage in deliberate practice um, as they're repeating? Um, and then also what we know about retention. So often repetition, say in a football example, scenario happens because we want them to learn. We want our players to learn passing patterns, for example. Um, and again, this to me is where a lot of teams, coaches go wrong um, and don't do this very effectively. The repetition alone isn't enough. We need to give players an opportunity to retrieve the passing patterns. So that would come under the uh, desirable, desirable difficulty of spacing. For example, we get we repeat passing patterns, I don't know, a number of times over 10 minutes, for example. Um, so you're getting your players to do that number of times over 10 minutes. Um, it's no good just walking away from that and saying to yourself, right, they've repeated it a number of time over times over 10 minutes. They've learned that now. They haven't learned that. They've probably become better at performing it, but they haven't learned it. Better to go away, play a small-sided game for five minutes, ten minutes, then come back and test their understanding. Ask them to set up an activity that makes them retrieve the passing patterns, to make them think again about what those passing patterns were. In that way, they've got to retrieve it. That retrieval um, gives their brain a better chance to lay down the kind of pathways associated with that passing pattern. Um, so that would be a desirable difficulty. That would be a stretch task that improves learning. So I, I, I think that we have to engage players in uh, uh, rehearsal, repetition, retrieval. We have to utilize variability, as you've said, to be able to help them become, uh, have experience activities that are more representative um, of, of, of playing a full game. Um, I think we just have to give them a rich experience, but we have to ask ourselves as coaches, what are we doing? How are we doing it? Why are we doing it this way? Are we helping our players learn? Are we giving ourselves, our players the best opportunity to learn and subsequently, subsequently perform if, you know, we're coaching at that, uh, performative level. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's what I would say to that. Yeah. And, and connecting this, because I diverted us a bit, connecting this to the stretch support again, you, you say in the post, uh, you turn the support dial by engaging them in repetition. This is just an example. And then you tweak the stretch dial some more by adding an opposition and by demanding that the pattern is executed yeah. faster. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, good. Yeah. You, you say in the beginning, this is a way, uh, it's like... Mm, a stance for a coach or a teammate uh, to have any time uh, to use these two dials to optimize player engagement. I'm quoting you there to optimize player learning and to optimize player competitiveness. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, th I think just briefly, I think, you know, you, you're looking at this piece because I was answering it there without looking at the piece, but, you know, it's, it, it's, it's reminded me that basically to support, we probably, there's a number of things we can do to support as coaches, but one is to strip away information. And that's what, you know, you've been a player yourself when you've been engaged in parting, passing patterns, when you've got um, dummies there 
uh, rather than an opposition. That's what you're doing. You're stripping away information and you're engaging in that passing activity but or that passing pattern. How so exactly, sorry? Stripping away, it's like... Stripping away information. So you haven't got an opposition. So there's no information there from an opposition, right? Mm. Okay. Um, there's just, um, you know, some dummies out there, you know, some model figures. Um, uh, tripping away information in as much as no pressure on it. Mm -hmm. All you've got to do is execute your your responsibility within that passing pattern. So stripping away information is that there's no game. You know, it's just I've got to engage in my task, my role here within this passing activity. But then, as I've said here in this article, I can put an opposition in. I can stretch by demanding that it, it's done faster. And then it's done faster with the opposition there. So I'm adding information in. I'm adding in layers. I'm adding in challenge and difficulty. Um, and then I can add in randomness. So rather than it starting, you know, you see this all the time. Coaches will start it from the goalkeeper. Well, that's not when passing patterns start in the game. Passing patterns might start halfway up the pitch. So, you know, you've got to start it from a random position. So you need to randomize that. Um, so the, the randomization, all kinds of things. Training, but I'm a big fan of take players away from that for five, 10 minutes, do a keep ball, then bring them back. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to be able to execute that passing pattern under mm -hmm. pressure. Mm -hmm. and, and beyond these uh, concrete examples that are very good, uh, and just to close this off, uh, I think this pretty much relates to a concept of psychological safety that uh, lately I've been uh, encountering, and I guess you too, um, and I would uh, sum it up in general terms that, uh, of course, if we just stay in the support dial too much uh, of the time, uh, we are not being challenging enough. So the players will become bored, I guess, and not learn so much. And if we are on the stretch and we will uh, stress them too much and it would not be advisable also. So in general terms, do you want to add something just very quickly in general terms to achieve the, a balance on this and the benefit of it? I think, well, let, let me just speak briefly to psychological safety. I mean, I think that when I write about psychological safety, I'm really talking about, I mean, psychological safety is uh, is the concept um, developed by Amy Edmondson um, from um, industry and the corporate world more so than the sporting world. Um, and it's very much around two concepts and that's participation and vulnerability. Um, but if we hone in on the vulnerability, psychological safety is about uh, um, creating an environment where people, the participants in your environment are uh, in, 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 they're allowed to express vulnerability. They're allowed to talk about the anxieties and the worries and the doubts, etc. So that's a real support mechanism there. Because as human beings, no matter, no matter how much skill you've got in your feet or in your hands or whatever, you know, you're going to have anxieties and worries and doubts and so on. And so when we bring this out onto the pitch, if we've had that conversation, if that comes out if that's allowed to come out in our environment and that therefore we start to talk about solutions to that there's great support mechanisms and so when we're engaging in turning up the volume of stretch 
for instance, let's go back to our passing activity where we make it tougher and we become more demanding as coaches and we demand the passing uh, pattern be done with greater speed. Uh, and we throw in an opposition who might be quite physical, for example. We do that on purpose, maybe. Um, then we're going to tap into uh, anxieties and worries and doubts and negative thoughts and neg we're going to create negative emotion on the pitch well if players have a solution in place to deal with negative emotion to deal with inhibition um, then they're going to be able to deal with that much better uh, when we're when we're turning up the volume of stretch so that that to me is the perfect balancing out is as long as we've provided the opportunity for players we've turned up the volume of support by providing them the knowledge the, the the platform to express vulnerability the knowledge to deal with anxieties and worries and doubts and inhibitions and negative emotions etc then we can turn up the volume of stretch and have them at balance have them at balance the more support work we do the the, the more stretch we can create and not have them uneven you know, I think that that's that that's really, really important. But I think what we can do is we can tend to demand, 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 turn up the volume of stretch so high, but there's not the support because we don't allow for vulnerability. We don't give the opportunity for, for solutions. We don't build in the mental frameworks um, that, that help players deal with the, those, those anxieties and doubts and stuff. So we've got to have both in place. Yeah, man. So good. Uh, and time is getting short. Uh, You're fine. We're fine. We're fine for time. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, so let's go for two or three more uh, instead of going for all of those. And I recommend people, if you want to know more about what I've prepared or you want to uh, explore more of uh, Dan's uh, posts, you can go on LinkedIn, open his publications and search for keywords that we are talking here or anyone, any one other word that you're interested in and you will find uh, uh, surely uh, more things around these big topics for sports psych. Um, let's go for this one. I guess it connects a little bit with the previous one also on self-efficacy. Uh, big theory for us and for psychology overall over the years it's it comes from albert bandura um and yes you you point in the in the post uh this is a useful theory for coaches and leaders to understand and to you and use to build player confidence uh you have a neat uh infographic here for for self-efficacy um, I will just say up front, this is the belief someone has that they have the ability to achieve a given task. And you have uh, five components here. Uh, I will let you talk on what you want first and uh, let's see. Yeah. Well, the five, the five sources, I mean, it started with four sources. Um, and then uh, Albert Bandura, who devised a theory back in the 1950s um, as, as part of his social cognitive theory, um, four sources were past experiences. So my, my essentially, my, let's use the word confidence. Self-efficacy is self-belief. And he regaled at the notion of confidence. But, you know, I've seen more and more practitioners and theorists talk about this in terms of confidence is driven by past experience, it's driven by verbal persuasion, 
by something called vicarious experience, so watching others achieve, and then emotional and physiological states, so how you feel within your body, essentially. And then he, he threw in a fifth one, which is imaginal experience, which is essentially what you're seeing, uh, you know, that, that sort of imagery, visualization, mental rehearsal scenario, um, you know, and sort of projecting yourself to the future, utilizing that, that, those, that cognitive tool. Um, so, um, you know, I, I always say if to bring this to life, um, one of the most important things I work on with a player is to get them to think from a performance perspective, um, is to get them to think about their best games every single day every single day their best uh their best training sessions that's past experiences you know you could you could suggest that champions uh, in part are championship champions and it's a very small part but in part because they're very good at remembering themselves at their best when you think about mm. you at your best what did that look like what did that feel like what do others see hey you athlete student or worker of some kind we want to know real cases so tell us from what you've heard what have you been missing out? What is one idea that popped into your mind while listening? Feel free to share in the comments so we can assist you further. See ya! Do you think the top players do that consistently? And I add to this question the the I thought that uh, spurred up on, uh, with you talking about that was uh, that would be possibly a good idea to counteract those tendency to be on negative thinking about some previous performance that went not so good and now we are throwing away our confidence, our self-efficacy might get down. So this is maybe a good way to go on thinking about good, uh, successful, more successful past experiences that like it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I, I think that, you know, as a, as a, as a psychologist, you, you're striving really to help somebody engage in flexible thinking. Um, you, you know, what we know and appreciate is we probably don't want to be and need to be thinking positively at all times. That's not what I'm saying. But as you've, you know, pointed out there, that it's very easy as a demanding professional athlete, demanding on yourself, um, it's important to explore what's not going well at times. Of course, that's important, doing that by design. But our brain tends towards the negative. It's a survival mechanism. And so being being able to orient yourself towards what's work, what works, what's strong, what's good, is useful because that is influencing the experiences you have of living in your world, living in your body, you know, the neurotransmitters that are released are heavily influenced by what you're paying attention to and what you're thinking about, what you're focusing on. So if we're constantly on the negative, that can influence your internal feelings and, and, and how you filter the world around you. So I think it's vital that all players spend a good proportion of time um, reflecting on what's good, what's strong, what works, and being being able to shift away from the negative, you know, and that that's for all human beings. Um, so 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 look, that's past experiences. Um, you know, another one is um, vicarious experience, which is um, which is as I said, looking at others and oh, if he or she can do it, I can do it as well. And maybe that's also wrapped up in social learning, you know, copying what they're doing. 
Um, and then um, one other to talk about emotional and physiological states, I think is really interesting because I always would say that self-belief and confidence, you know, they're slightly, maybe slightly different constructs, but um, for me, confidence is a feeling. It's a feeling that that's my, that's my belief. And I think, what do we say? I feel confident. So what is a feeling? It's something that's emanating from our body, how we feel. So for me, one of the most important. So would things... you say because at the beginning it's like you pointed to self-efficacy and confidence as synonyms, but uh, it's like self-efficacy is more of the cognitive part and confidence the feeling. Uh... Yeah, although Bandura is obviously relating it to feelings because he's talking about emotional and physiological states, and and this is where there can be some confusion. And and as I've as I've said, Gonzalo, you know, I I, I picked up a book recently where a good friend of mine wrote a chapter and uh, talking about challenge and threat states, which is driven by in part self-efficacy, and he used the term confidence in there, and his. Um, his supervisor is Dr. Mark, Professor Mark Jones, who um, is one of the world's leading, uh, um, um, so, you know, sports psychologists on this area. And so, you know, um, I, I think they're used interchangeably. So I think it would be wrong of me to say, well, self-efficacy is definitely the cognitive piece because Bandura related it to feeling as well. I just think from a lexical, from a linguistic perspective, we tend to talk about feelings of confidence. And so really to bring it alive to, for people, I, I talk about feelings and I talk, that's how I relate to body language and um, action. And, and I say to, to players, you know show me confidence when you're doing this activity i don't want you just to focus on doing the activity well i want you to execute every action with confidence use your body body intention intentionally your body is an instrument so use it as an instrument to demonstrate confidence to yourself to inject feelings of confidence in into you and so i think when we talk about body language we talk about it a little bit too superficially i think we can utilize our body as an instrument to start to experience the feelings of confidence that we can then replicate going into a game that's how i would describe it which is a slightly deeper level deeper form of body good, good body language essentially good. yeah I, i know you you often speak about body language uh, it's a, a big thing to you and uh, just uh, what what this is maybe an unfair question to pose because every client athlete or um, well each case is a is a new case but uh, what element inside of this self-efficacy or confidence work do you often work with athletes or do you like to uh, highlight yeah def definitely those t the two big ones for me in my experience mm -hmm. would be the past experience and the emotional and physiological states. I, th those are just massive for me, but I, they're all important. You know, I talk about having in my toolbox, um, memory, imagination, and perception. And this is when I wrote my first book, soccer tough back in 2012, I had memory as chapter one, talking about a goalkeeper, remembering his best, best performances. I had imagination as the next chapter. And I talked about Lionel Messi. Uh, oh, no, no, beg your pardon. Not, I didn't talk that. It was about perception. So the next chapter, I talked about imagination. So that's imaginal experience. What will my dream game look like, feel like? So very much around visualization and imagery. And then the next chapter, perception, 
Lionel Messi, and that was perceiving things because obviously he's five foot five, five foot six. You know, he could perceive that as a disadvantage, but he perceived that as a as a, as a as a strength, as something that he could utilise. So that might come under the verbal persuasion source, perhaps. But I but I but I also think here that more and more as you're saying I'm, I'm writing about body language but i think that that gets a bad press you know people might say oh well dan come on body language that's obvious isn't it but no hang on you know this is embodied experience this is about our lived experience our experience of living in our body is important you know and i spoke to lisa feldman barrett about this who's um, one of the world's leading neuroscientists she's the in the top one percent cited scientists on the planet you know and she talks about this pr brain process of interoception and what interoception is 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 our brain uh, is constantly scanning our body and it gets back information from our body, from our organs, uh, from our muscles, from our joints, from our um, neurotransmitters. And what it sends back is information that's shaped as feeling. This feeling, the scientific term is affect, affect, and that influences our mood. And we've got two cont continuums uh, going on at, at, at the same time, pleasure and displeasure alertness and fatigue essentially and so we're on those continuums at all times we constantly have affect going around all the time and so when Marcello Bielsa talks about football as a game of emotion I would actually say yes but actually it's a game of affect it's a game of feeling you know how many players say to me Dan I wasn't feeling it today I just wasn't, you must have experienced that as a player yourself. I was warming up. I just wasn't feeling it. I, you know, I wasn't sharp. I wasn't alert. I wasn't alive. You know, that's affect. And so body language, emotional and physiological, when related to emotional and physiological states, comes back to interoception, affect. It has a brain underpinning there. Um, so that, that's, that's such an important thing that's never spoken about. And and that starts to touch on one point that I had here prepared and uh, bringing from uh, the man Ken Revisa from the United States, one of the precursors of sports psychology there. Uh, he, he focused very much his work on adjusting to these, uh, like you said there, uh, I'm not, I, I didn't feel like it today. So many times players are not on their best so confidence gets low and we have to work with them on adjusting that and this type of work on self-efficacy may help on that I, I i'm getting it from your conversation there and uh yeah it's uh, yeah to me heavily supported by what the neuroscience is saying now heavily supported by what the, what the stuff that lisa feldman barrett talks about in her new book uh seven and a half lessons about the brain is absolutely they go hand in hand and even even the verbal persuasion you know um you know she talks about the language uh areas of our brain uh, are linked uh, take control of our body um our body functions so so important and that's why i do a lot of work around language with players whether it's narrative going into the game or it's specific cues that they use in a game you know that's so it's so important yeah so many of these things, uh, self-talk, uh, 
interception, uh, all these elements uh, connects to this confidence that will influence our level of performance and our uh, contentment yeah, and the success we, we will have. So it's also a thing that you point often to the importance of being able to analyze uh, our performances to spot those m lower moments and shift back on giving a hundred percent of of what we have and now to to finish these posts uh we have a big one here uh, achievement goal orientation theory this was part also of my master's dissertation thesis um a focus on mastery versus or and or ego oriented goals what do you have to say on the importance of this <laughs> such hey, a big question and open a, to this it, yeah. i think it's a great question to to finish on i think it's a great um, topic to finish on i think um you know this is this is two things really um the wider literature is on uh, mastery climates uh, which is, uh, and then I suppose um, its close relation is achievement goal theory, uh, both of which really stems from the work by uh, John Nichols, John G. Nichols, um, who sadly passed away in the mid '90s, uh, and and Carol Dweck, who the sporting world know pretty well from growth mindset but that growth mindset really stems from this work on motivational climates climates and achievement goal theory and, and basically their close relation in as much as you know you you've used these terms ego and task or ego and mastery and in simple terms um, what the literature suggests is that when yeah, just just a parenthesis here there uh, self theories from Carl, Carl Dweck it was the yes. precursor for the growth yes. mindset literature yes. and all of that yeah very yeah great great knowledge gonzalo yeah self theories is a people ask me which book to get and uh, i actually point them towards self theories more so than um more so than the growth mindset book i think it's um around meaning systems and i think it's very pertinent and so it's really about look, let, let's strip this back it's about helping people orient towards the task um the in simple terms the things that are specific and controllable and positive rather than being too oriented towards comparison of others so that would revolve more around the performance and the outcome now that's not to suggest that we don't want to want to win that we don't want to want to perform and there's some interesting research coming out of switzerland at the moment around uh, uh, the term they use um, for uh, motivation is um, highly intrinsically achievement-oriented athletes. So highly intrinsically achievement-oriented athletes. So that achievement orientation is, I don't think anybody denies that we still want, if we're talking about sports here, you know, uh, certainly at the adult elite level, the professional level, we want athletes to orient towards we want to win and we want to perform well. But what we know is that type of motivation can get in our way. We're almost doing a full circle back to that idea of identity yeah, in many yeah, respects, which that, is yeah. when our identity or when our, our sole purpose becomes or objective, as 
got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform, got to perform. You know, that's an ego orientation because that's a comparison to others. We're trying to beat others. We're trying to perform better than others. That has its place. Nobody denies that. But what research has suggested, the empirical evidence and what the experiential evidence says as well, because frequently sports psychologists work with athletes to help them become more task and mastery oriented and it really helps them what it suggests is that as i've said if we can help players become self-referenced focus on their tasks that are specific that are more controllable than completely uncontrollable and that are positive so we focus on what we want that's absolutely that's a great orientation to have an adaptive orientation to have and i'll give you a working example from my own playbook because i can talk about this because i wrote about him in my first book back in 2012 so this is a good story to finish off on i work with a player called carlton cole he's now retired he played for west ham in the english premier league and eventually went on to play for england and when i first sat down with carlton and i asked him and he was suffering from anxiety, performance anxiety on the pitch and he wasn't high performing consistently enough. I said, what are you trying to achieve? And he took me through a whole range of sort of objectives that you were really ego oriented, such as, well, I want to win. I want to perform really well. I want to score. He was a striker. I want to stay in the team. I don't want to let my teammates down. All these things. By the time he was playing for England, he made his debut for England against Spain, so the world champions at the time. So we're going back to sort of 2009. He had three main objectives. Um, it was something like always look for space, non-stop movement, get shots away. Always look for space, specific, yep, controllable, yep, positive, yep. Non-stop movement, specific, yep controllable absolutely positive yep it's focused on what he wants no, uh, get shots away specific yep controllable cl closer to controllable mm -hmm. than scoring right positive absolutely focus on what he wants those were his three objectives okay. specific controllable positive that's a mastery or a task orientation did he still want to win absolutely did he mm -hmm. want to perform well of course gonzalo but he was focused on those to help the winning and the performance yeah. and it wasn't the only thing occupying his mind because again as you've said it can get on one's way and this type of motivation that is dependent on results that is dependent on more uncontrollable factors will bring up that fragility we've talked about before also a fragility that might emerge by sustaining more of these ego-oriented goals uh, because if we not if we don't achieve uh, then what yeah Absolutely. Fills up, you know, if, if you go out on a pitch, you make a few mistakes, you start to think you're not performing so well. You start to have negative thoughts, bad feelings. You start to fill up that working memory that we spoke about at the beginning. Um, and you can't anticipate as quickly. You're not going to be aware. You're not going to see the pitch around you. Your your physical capacity reduces and so on and so forth. Yeah, so and just things. another simple thing uh, on keeping track uh, of our uh, evolution. It's uh, it's more good metrics around test goals than ego-oriented, for sure. Yeah. Let's go for our final question, uh, one that I al always ask our guests. It might be uh, 
somewhat difficult and you can focus more on athletes or coaches or both as you like but what do you think is the w number one ingredient to efficiently work one sports practice um one ingredient to officially work one sports practice i think good question um let's let's go from okay from a player's point of view uh, let's go player i'll answer both player um i think it's vital that players have a mental framework uh to their game I think it's absolutely imperative. They have to, for me in all sports, I want players, even the ones who would say that they're mentally competent or strong or skillful or however you want to describe it, and even the best players in the world, for me, need a framework to the mental side of the game. This is how I'm going to do the mindset. Um, so I would say that is vital. Um, and then for coaches, there's so much. I think it's... I'm going to say a framework to the psychosocial side of coaching. And when I say psychosocial, I'm saying biopsychosocial, environment, cultural, thrown into the mix. Psychosocial, what is your framework? What is your psycho? Let me put it this way. What is your psychosocial plan? What is your psychosocial plan? I'm not convinced that if I asked even Premier League managers and coaches what their psychosocial plan is, that they could articulate it in a great deal of detail, backed by empirical and or experiential evidence. Um, so that's what I, I always say to coaches, have a psychosocial plan. What is it? What's your psychosocial plan for leadership, teamship, relationship, coaching practice, self skills, environment, behavior management, motivation, personality character, characteristics or character building. What is your psychosocial plan? That's yeah. what I'd say. Gonzalo. Because that would be all the groundwork for anything else to be worked upon, to appear, to optimize performance. Yeah. And on this groundwork, we've talked about uh, multiple identities. We start to talk about the importance of identity. We went through honing implicit both implicit and explicit instruction from things like cla cons constraints led approach and by giving a step-by-step -step approach on uh, following and accompanying uh, players uh, from an expert giving feedback uh, desirable difficulties was a pretty good term i got to know uh, on that stretch and support bit that you are a big advocate for and on self-efficacy, uh, we emphasized on past experiences, being able to focus and regain some confidence and focus on the present by uh, noticing that we are capable of uh, better uh, performances and not being strictly uh, unflexible uh, thinking on previous bad performances. And to help on these both imaginal experiences, body language to spot and come back to better focus and practices. I really enjoyed your last pieces here also. Um, now, where where can people find you? Uh, yeah, well, look, firstly, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come and speak to you today, Gonzalo. It's been a, a, an honor and a pleasure. Um, uh, look, firstly, danabrahams.com 
danabrahams.com is my website um, where you can get information there about my, my consultancy, my books. I have an online academy that helps players, coaches and parents work together on the mental side of the game. So real integration of sports psychology there. Um, I have uh, those books are available on Amazon. Um, mm -hmm. There is a Portuguese translation actually somewhere, I think. Um, and um, I have, uh, as I, as you mentioned uh, kindly, um, I have a, my own podcast called the sports psych show, um, which is great purely because I have great guests, not because I'm a particularly good host, but because I have great guests. So you, you can do check that out. great <laughs> guests and the great modesty there. <laughs> you, you can check that out by just going to Google and just put in the sports psych show. Um, and you'll, that will come up, um, and it's on various platforms. So look, uh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak. And, um, I, I, I look forward to doing it again in the future. Good. Thank you for your openness. Thank you for listening to this EWS interview. To see more, go to ewsport.eu. If you want to open up a discussion about some topic address, reach out by commenting below or leave a message at ewsport.eu. Hope you enjoyed. See you on the next one. I remind you that you can write a comment right there on some podcast apps, on our Instagram at ewsport.eu, or even by sending a quick voice message on the clickable link I leave right at the end of this episode description. If you prefer to stay anonymous, this is a good option. All simple and free. So take the time to do so, and take a step to be closer of efficiently work your sports practice. Until then, take care.